Welcome back to another episode of Customers Who Click. In this week's episode, I'm excited to be speaking with Tim Swindle and Scott Brown. They're serial entrepreneurs in the toy and games industry and most recent co-founders of Paddle Smash, a game that's a cross between pickleball and spikeball. Having so much experience between them, we'll be discussing the lessons they've learned along the way and covering topics such as how to identify your audience, how to market separately to different audiences and what a good online experience will look like. We'll also be discussing what their general approach is to communicating with customers. For access to the previous 132 episodes of the Customers Who Click podcast, you can head over to the Customers Who Click website, uh, where you'll also get access to over 50 actionable tips to help your business today. Right, let's get on with welcoming Tim and Scott to the show. Tim, Scott, thanks for joining me today. Would you mind uh, giving us a, a bit of an intro to yourselves, a um, bit of you, you know, your background and kind of how you've got to where you are today? Who, who wants to go first? Yeah, I'll go first. So I'm Scott Brown, and I'm the co-founder of Paddle Smash together with Tim. Uh, quick background is that I have been in the toy and game industry for about 15 years. I fell into it through a series of sort of lucky opportunities. Um, I can get into more detail around around those because it is kind of how I met Tim as well. But been making toys and games for 15 years. I've made about 160 to date. Um, and Paddle Smash is my latest and I think greatest. Yeah. And uh, so I was actually a software entrepreneur, very low tech or very, very high tech versus what I do now, which is very low tech. And uh, while building that software company, I had the idea for a, a board game, a physical board game that I, I launched out into the ether without any background or history in you know creating toys and games. And uh, ultimately, that led me down this new career path of creating toys and games for a living. And so I've been at it now about eight years in this industry. And that's uh, that's how I met that's how I met Scott. Cool. Sounds good. Um so first, do you want to give us an introduction to Paddle Smash first? And then we'll get into the how did it actually come about. Yeah, the best way to describe Paddle Smash is that it's the love child of pickleball and spikeball. So if you're not familiar with either of those, you've maybe been kind of buried in a hole for the last year, especially pickleball. Pickleball is the fastest growing sport in, in North America. I know a lot of your listeners aren't in the U.S., so if it hasn't made, to the U- made it to the U.K. yet, it will soon. Um, pickleball is like a miniature version of tennis. Uh, it's played with, um, think of it as jumbo-sized ping pong paddles and a wiffle ball, so a plastic ball rather than a tennis ball. And why it's emerged as such a popular sport in the U.S., lots of reasons, but I think the accessibility, it's so much easier to play than tennis. And so it's made it so even older adults can get out there. I play almost every day. Yesterday, I was playing with 70-year-olds, 80-year-olds, and so everyone can get out and play. So we we recognize that as an emerging sport. And then the other would be spike ball, which is kind of a popular outdoor game, the most popular outdoor game in the last 10 years in the U.S., um, and it's, you know, if you drive past a park in the U.S., you almost always see a group of teenage kids out playing spike ball, kind of roaming around a net, hitting a ball down into the net surface. And it's a little bit like volleyball in that you've got three hits to get it back into the middle. Well, our game takes the best elements of both of those and merges it into one. So you're still roaming around a central base, but ours has a hard plastic base and a net system that requires you to hit downward. We call it a smash shot. Same idea, three sets or three hits to get it back into play. Um, and you're going back and forth. The best way to play our game is two versus two. And you're working with a teammate to bump, set, and smash the ball back into the play surface. That's that's uh, essentially paddle smash. 
Yes, that's quite interesting. Um, was it Pickleball? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So that does sound a little bit, or in fact, I've, I've looked it up. It does look a bit like paddle tennis. Paddle tennis, we have, yeah. We have paddle oh. tennis here, yeah, which is, yeah. um, I think the court is roughly half the size of a tennis court. I think you basically put, you know, you can convert one tennis court into two uh, paddle tennis courts. You're allowed to hit the ball against the wall, but it's still kind of similar rules, right? It can only bounce on the floor once and then it's got to go um, over the other side of the net. But I think I have a feeling the rackets and the balls are a bit more like tennis. Yeah, so it's slightly still different. Kind of- you know, paddle tennis has a, uh, it's a usually a wooden paddle or like a paddle with holes in it. The biggest differences are, I would say, paddle tennis is probably as hard as tennis. Um, the serve is still a hard serve. Um, I think the beauty of pickleball is that it's a, an underhanded serve. So the serve doesn't tend to be part of the game. It's like get a serve in and then the play starts. Where with tennis, and I'd say with paddle tennis too, it's a lot of waiting around for someone to get a serve in. Um, you know, miss a serve and then you get a second chance and then you maybe hit a serve in. Well, pickleball eliminates that. And so we really, I mean, that's one reason I love it and why it's taking off is because 80-year-olds can't go out and compete with teenage kids because this of the serve. But with pickleball, you can just get it right in. So, you know, in many ways, we're trying to capture the accessibility um, of pickleball inside of our game, where a game like spikeball, historically, I'd say spikeball is a hard game to play. It's a hard game for older adults to play with younger kids. It's a hard game for dads like myself to play with my teenage daughter. Um, they just, they're more athletic, faster. And, uh, and so what our game does is just make a game like that more accessible, easier to play, easier to keep up with your kids. Okay, cool. So yeah, how did this come about? Um, I suppose, how, how did you both meet? Yeah, how do you go about, like, where does the idea for a new game like that come from? Because uh, you know, obviously, with a lot of businesses, it's people seeing a gap in the market, right? But I suppose, what was that gap that you saw? What what yeah, sparked this yeah. opportunity? <laughs> so, in, in our case, I mean, you know, so we are we're in this world of toys and games, and 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 Scott, in particular, more more so than myself, his his role at his his prior company was actually evaluating concepts for a living, and he worked for a big. A toy company that would meet with inventors and look at new products that they wanted to bring to market. And uh, so through that experience, you know, he had the ability to see a lot of stuff and learn what what worked and what didn't. And, uh, you know, my, so myself also, you know, have, have brought several products, not quite as few as, as Scott, not quite as many as Scott, but, you know, so you start to develop a little bit of an eye for trends in the space. You see stuff happening on social media, and these are all, you know, you, you try to have your antenna up a little bit of like, what's going on? What's coming around the corner? And obviously, you know, pickleball, Scott's a huge pickleball player. I enjoy it. Uh, very familiar with spike ball. And, you know, there's other trends in the space. For instance, in the outdoor game uh, arena, it's the fastest growing uh, genre in toys and games is outdoor sports. And so we had kind of played around with the idea that we wanted to do something. And through a happenstance of luck, uh, we actually were introduced to the inventor of Paddle Smash. So I guess that's one kind of twist in this whole story is that we did not actually invent Paddle Smash. Uh, so we we have done several games of our own in the past, but this was one that we were introduced to the inventor of it, who through a mutual connection of Scott's out in Utah, had actually come up with this product. 
So I can I can dig, dig in more there if you'd like. Let's let's dig into the game a bit. Yeah. Right? So okay, great. Uh, so so the story starts with Joe Bingham. Joe is this structural engineer in Utah. He has seven kids, six boys. They're all very active. Love outdoor sports. Uh, they currently love playing pickleball. The whole family is super into pickleball. They live in an area where the closest pickleball courts are 20 minutes away and they're always crowded because of how popular the game is now. The family used to love playing spike ball. Joe's a little older. He doesn't quite, can't quite keep up with his teenage boys anymore. And he was like, I I need to figure this out. You know, I want to be able to compete. I want to be able to beat these kids at something. And, and so he just, you know, with his, his own pain, basically of wanting to have a backyard sport that he could play with his family that they would all enjoy. He started tinkering around in his garage and he started taking these concepts of, you know, he, he, he saw how everyone loved playing spike ball. He loved how, you know, he saw how everyone loves playing pickleball and basically kind of brought these two worlds together. And he's a engineer. He's savvy with, you know, he's got CNCs and routers in his garage and he knows how to work with different materials. And he basically put together a prototype and refined it over you know a couple of years and played it with family and friends and basically invented this this new game and uh, that's when Scott was introduced to him he didn't quite know what to do with it he knew that it was a ton of fun and it was just kind of serendipitous that a mutual connection uh, was introduced to Scott and uh, that's that's how we got involved basically wanted a, an active family activity for outside but one that would actually allow like kind of leveled the playing field for, you know, regardless of like age or whatever. Yep, exactly. So when, how long ago was that? So that was about a year ago. So we, we got involved about a year ago. And from that point, you know, what, what he had was a very rough prototype and we had to then take it over. So we, we created a, a licensing agreement with him. So that's, that's our arrangement. So you know, Scott and I own, own the company of Paddle Smash. And Joe just has a royalty agreement between us based on sales. And so, but Joe's was like this big, heavy, probably 50 pound behemoth of a thing. And it certainly wasn't ready for retail. So we had to then take that, hire a design engineering firm that could then create a version that was mass producible, ready for retail, could be easily foldable and portable so people could bring it to the beach, et cetera. So lighter weight but still providing the same performance of Joe's. And so that's been about a year process to where we are now. So now we're actually launching basically as we speak. Awesome. So I, that was kind of going to be my next question about launching. Um, have, have you got the product in the hands of people or is it, uh, are you still kind of completely pre-launch? No, as of about one week ago, we received our inventory, our very first shipment and started to ship initial orders. So we are taking okay. orders now. It's live on our website, paddlesmash.com, and we're taking orders um, for, for the product. So yeah, now it's the, you know, making a product, coming up with the idea, those are, they're not easy, but they're easier parts. Uh, the hard part now is to is to sell it. And uh, so that's where we are right now in the process is figuring out how to get out into the world. And this is, I think, based on our backgrounds, you know, I used to help run a retail chain of stores. I've got experience on the retail side of things. Um, and then, you know, my company was acquired by a big toy and game manufacturer. 
and I got the experience of selling into mass market retail. I'd say I learned a lot in that process about how I want to do things going forward and how I don't. Um, I'd say one of the big lessons is we historically, from a marketing perspective, have in the U.S. at least relied on big mass market retailers to spread the word about a product. If you wanted to get your product out into the world, you didn't have any options other than getting it into a retail store. That was the way you got word out. And I'd say we're still in many ways in that world, but we're kind of at the precipice of a big, a big shift um, towards the direct consumer world. And you see that there's lots of direct consumer businesses that have succeeded over the last 10 years. Um, but it is still a shift. And it's one that I, a lot of people don't know how to navigate. And uh, one quick anecdote, just from my experience, I, I went from this small, scrappy startup to this big, huge, multi-billion dollar company. Um, you know, small, scrappy startup. We were, we were acquired by the big billion dollar company. And I went to work for this billion dollar company. And it was this big shift. It went from you know, if I if I had an idea when it was my company, well, we'd make it. We'd just go to work and we'd make it and it would be in our store six months later. Well, that's not how it works at the big company. The big company, you've got to then kind of sell it upstream, first of all, and then you've got to sell it into retail. And that is a that's a long process. Yeah. So I I know exactly what you mean. Um I've I've been through that exact experience myself. Um my, my background was startups. So very kind of scrappy, like just get stuff done. Let's, you know, figure out the minimum, you know, minimum viable product for anything, right? No matter what it was, if it was a new marketing campaign, new feature we wanted to try out, whatever, it was what is the quickest, cheapest way we can test this to see if people are going to respond to it well. Then we can, then we can, you know, um, you know, create it properly, you know, do it properly, whatever. Then I moved to this quite big gambling company here in the UK. And th- pretty much the reason I left in the end was exactly what you're talking about, right? I I was in a, in a new role, which was all about launching new websites in different countries. And the way it was pitched to me was like an incubator role. It was going to be, you know, we're going to start a new website, you know, identify the country, start a new website. If we hit certain KPIs, we're going to hand it over to the operational team who will just continue to run it as a day-to-day business and you guys move on to the next one and launch a new one, launch a new one. That's not how it worked out at all. It was what you said. There was a lot of um, putting together briefing documents for the higher-ups, putting together really detailed uh, comparisons of different countries and and all this stuff. And I think I was in that role for about six months when I left and we were probably nine to 12 months away from launching anything. So it was just, yeah, I just found it a bit frustrating, a bit slow. Um, Everything takes so long. And even after you've done all of that work, there's no guarantee of selling. And so, you know, there was one example where we worked for a year on a product. We had to have spent $150,000 just to get a viable product to show to a buyer at a retail chain. That buyer shows up into our showroom and she's just in a bad mood from the night before, like bad night's sleep. No negative feelings towards us were the product, just in a bad mood. And she's kind of like, ah, not in the mood to see this today. Well, that was enough for our head of sales to just say, let's scrap the project. Um, if this if this buyer's not in, it doesn't make sense for us to go forward with it. 
And so we scrapped yeah. a year's worth of work in $150,000. And I think it said to me, and I get why that exists and I get why mass market still matters. But for us, we would love to at least um, do some work on our end to build up awareness around a product and demand around a product before dropping it into mass market retail and then crossing your fingers and praying. Um, and so that's what we're really trying to do here. This fall, we've ordered a thousand units. It's not very many units. And we've really looked at this fall as our opportunity to test and learn, to figure out a little bit about our market before we go to brick and mortar retail with the product. And so that's what we're doing. We're thinking about this fall, this thousand units. All our goal is right now is sell a thousand units and let's figure out how to do that and the best, least uh, least expensive way to sell those thousand. Um, and so that's really, this fall is our test and learn. Next spring is where we think of kind of our, our big, huge launch out into the world. And hopefully we'll, we'll have built up enough demand that that goes smoothly. Yeah. So I've never, I've, I've never worked with retail. It's just not been, it's never been involved in one of my roles. But I would have thought being able to go to retail and say, this is how many products we've sold. Uh, this is how many people we've got who have you know, signed up to a waiting list, whatever. Actual you know, data in front of them and say, there is demand for this product. Do you want to stock it? That's a lot more likely to get you through the door than just, we've got this cool product. What do you think? Right? Is You're that right. You're right. And to some extent, we do have a, a little bit of a leg up because we have experience selling into retail. And, and so we have begun those conversations. You know, I think at this point, we, we can openly share that it looks like we're going to be brought into a couple of the bigger retailers in, in the United States in the spring, which is very exciting. Uh, but we still have to, that's unusual, right? So to your point, very rarely will some of those bigger retailers bring in a product that doesn't have some sort of proven track record, some sort of sales track record. And that's why this beauty of direct-to-consumer and e-commerce, you can control that narrative. Whereas back in the day, it would be, hey, you got to go find some smaller one-off, call it mom-pop type retailers to start to get some traction. Now you can spin up your own website, you can spin up an Amazon storefront, and you can start driving traffic and start testing the waters to understand what's working, who is your audience, et cetera, and then take that data to share with retailers pretty quickly. So it shortens that cycle from when you are just getting started to when you can get traction with the bigger retailers. And so you know, that's what we're living right now. Yeah. I mean, it just it makes me think of uh, Dragon's Den over here, which is uh, like Shark Tank over there, I mm -hmm. think. Um, yeah, you know the the people who do best are the ones who know their numbers, and and obviously have good numbers to back it to back it up. But mm -hmm. you know it's 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 obviously a good product that the dragons look at and go, yeah, okay, this this seems pretty cool, um, and and good numbers that make them go, cool. There's actually there's a business here. That's why they want to invest in it, and that's why a retailer is going to want to stock your product, right? Because they can see yeah, that there's a business there, a viable product. It's going to make them money. Yeah, I'll just I'll just add. I mean, we do have two very strong tailwinds and two big buzzwords that these these buyers they know what's selling, they know what's moving product right now. And pickleball is on fire. Everything they're putting in pickleball in the pickleball spots in their stores is selling like crazy. And then spike ball, top selling game 
for the past 10 years. So when we come in and we say, hey, listen, we're this combination of two of the, the better sellers that you have right now, it's going to catch their attention, right? Even though this is a net new concept and net new game, we're still riding these really strong tailwinds of two very you know, strong uh, sellers in their stores. And, and that's helped open up those conversations. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so what, it, what is your route to market? I don't know how much you, you want to share with us, but what, what are you targeting? Where, where do you think the opportunity is? And I think what would be interesting is, uh, I don't know if you have enough data yet for this already, but obviously you had that, that pain point at the start, right? Which was the want a family game which everyone can get involved in, but it's active. Um, but you know, the maybe the older members of the family can still keep up with. Are you finding that that is the audience? Do you think that is the the way to market? Or that's our hypothesis right now. We don't yeah. we don't know for sure. I think this is what we're testing different marketing messages, and we'll find out. Um, but we think so, and we think it's that combined with the pickleball player. Um, you know, if you think about these two worlds, pickleball and spike ball, they're, they're pretty different consumers. The pickleball consumer is, on the whole, older. Um, I'd say because of that, tends to have more discretionary income. They're very used to spending $200 on a paddle alone. Um, and our, our product's expensive um, compared to a lot of the outdoor games in the market. And so, you know, one of the things we really wanted to do was come to market with a very high quality version. Um, and we didn't want the reason this thing didn't work was because of quality failures. And so ours is expensive because of that. And, uh, you know, so we, we think, well, this, this pickleball player, they're used to spending this kind of money. They're thirsty for any type of pickleball experience. And so this is one thing we're kind of testing and learning around is, you know, is the pickleball market the one to go after? The other option is you go after the outdoor game market or the spike ball player. Well, spike ball players tend to be, college age kids with less discretionary income, uh, a spike ball set costs something like $70. And I think that's a lot of money for a college age kid to, to spend on a game. Um, well, our game's a lot more than that. And so I think that out of those two worlds, you know, we'll test in both, but we really think that spike ball world is the one we go after. And so the ways you do that, number one, you, you seed the product with prominent um, spike ball or prominent pickleball players. And so we're working on getting our product into the hands of well-known pickleball players and getting them playing with it and trying to get word to spread a little bit. Um, thankfully, we have two really good models of how this is done, um, especially with Spikeball and with another game called CrossNet, which is over the last three years has been one of the fastest growing sports uh, or outdoor products in the U.S., and we've been able to watch what they've done. And what they've done in many ways is just seed the product out there. They're, one of the benefits of an outdoor game is it's very visual. And so when someone's out playing it in a park, other people see it and they want to know about it. And ours is the same way. When people see it, they want to know about it. And that's how word starts to spread. So for us, we've viewed within these first thousand, we've got a chunk set aside to just send out for free um, in exchange for word of mouth advertising um, content back from these people. So it's like we might reach an agreement with a pickleball professional and say, in exchange for us giving you product, we want free content back. You film 
yourself and others playing this game, send it to us and we can repurpose that content for our social channels. And just on the whole kind of aggregating all of this kind of word of mouth buzz and using it to start the snowball, um, that sort of spread effect that you get when you get just a few out and then it has a hopefully a domino effect. Yeah, yeah, kind of uh, influencer marketing, uh, micro-influencer UGC sort of thing works works really well. Um, so actually, so here, like uh, I think I said at the start, um, uh, paddle tennis is becoming, it's getting bigger and bigger, right? It, there's, so I, I play tennis. Um, I'm at a tennis club. So I guess I hear about this stuff a bit more, um, but the conversation has been picking up. Um, now there's actually a club near us who uh, my parents have gone to because they they actually have paddle tennis courts. And I think they said recently that club has decided to put on another, an, an additional uh, social session per week because the demand is there. They're, they're booked out on the other two days, I think it is. So they're having to introduce a third day a week just for kind of anyone can turn up and you just have a game. Right. So when that, as that conversation starts to pick up, as people say, you know, I'm, I'm sure every now and again, my parents would have said to someone, oh, I, I can't play a tennis match this day because we've got a, a paddle tennis match booked. Right now, obviously, it's a little bit different because we're talking about having to go to a club where there is a fixed court for it. Whereas you, uh, with with um, paddle smash, it's a it's a portable thing. So it's a little bit different. Um, but there's still that element of, you know, people in these kind of linked sports know about other sports that are similar. They talk about them. I'm sure it's the same with badminton as well. I'm sure there are badminton players who who play other other sports, squash players as well. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, all these people thinking uh, maybe they'd like to do something different or for whatever reason, they're struggling with tennis or squash or whatever and are maybe looking for that other opportunity. That's that's certainly our our thesis. We just think racket sports players are are very. We think that's the low hanging fruit for this game. People that are comfortable with playing with a racket. So, I'll just say from the advertising side, when we're talking about keywords and what we're doing with Google and Facebook and whatnot, we're we're honing in on the various racket sports and people that have identified. They like squash, they like racquetball, they like paddle tennis. And that's where we feel like our early, our early adopters are going to be. And to your other point about, you know, people are going to these courts. And that, actually, that was kind of a fun anecdote that we, we ended up getting a sale right when we turned the website on. And we don't really know. We didn't really know how that happened because we hadn't done anything. We, we did hire the inventors kids who are like 15 years old. They're the, they had the only version of paddle smash in existence at their house. So we were like, Hey, start filming yourself and we'll just post it to our social media channels. Let's just start getting some content out there with no ads behind it or anything. Somehow uh, this, this woman found it and, and scrolled through and, and saw this or her kid found it. I'm sorry. And so we got a couple sold and, and it turned out that her kid had seen this uh, when we posted it and he was super into pickleball and, and, and he experienced I think on what you're saying is like they'll get together with the with the, the the neighborhood and whatnot and play on certain nights, but there's a lot of waiting around while you're waiting for a game to play. And so he thought this would be the perfect thing to have off to the side to be playing while they're waiting for 
their game of pickleball or paddleball or whatever it is that they're going to be playing. And that's quite frankly what one of our own theses was, was like, what a great thing to bring to the courts and everybody can play it while they're waiting for their game for the, for the actual thing they went to go play. <laughs> and, well, can, uh, and that's turned out to be up. true. You can warm up. Exactly. Yeah. You can use it as a, a, great, as a warm up thing. Yeah. Yep. You, it's a great warm up tool. Absolutely. So you, you said something which um, had been on my mind. So I was going to bring it up. You said the kid found the game and was interested in it and wanted and got the mum to buy it. Was that right? That is right. So that, yeah, that's going to be the interesting thing. Who is the actual decision maker for a purchase like this? Obviously, the if you're saying it's a bit more expensive and youngsters might not be able to afford it, then the buyer is going to be the parent. But who's the one actually driving that decision? And what you might find is that actually it's, yeah, it's, it's loads of kids who are saying, you know, they've seen this game. It's really cool. It'd be a great family game to play and getting the parents to buy the, the, the set. Yeah, we don't know. I think this is going to be an exciting next few months as we learn that. I think we've had that sort of one example of it being a kid driving purchase, uh, mom being the ultimate decision maker. I, I, I'm sure we'll have some of that. Our thesis is that it's probably going to be more parent driving, even, dr- even driving purchase. The desire being that we are all desperately looking for ways to play together as families. Um, mm. It's just such a way to bond as a family is to play together and to have a game that's accessible across a broad range of ages is unique. Um, you know, I think there aren't very many sports out there where dad can play with teenage kid and both can play hard and not feel like like they're way ahead of the other. And so it's one thing that we, as I've said a couple of times, feel is a unique proposition with our game is that it is a game that truly can be played with dad, mom, and kids. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's our hope. Our hope is that parent is also driving purchase, that mom and dad sees this, they go, oh, that is a pain point of ours, um, and this game solves it. All of it is so far is anecdotal. I've been out at kind of local local fairs and local gatherings and shown the product, and that has resonated. I think I get a lot of nodding from parents when I explain the origin story of this game. Um, and kind of a lot of our early purchases were parents buying it for that express purpose. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I, I suppose it's probably a little bit early to talk about mistakes, maybe, but have there any been, been any... Uh, challenging situations that have come up that were a bit unexpected so far you know we've mostly been involved with the product development side of things and so i'd say one was we this is a uh, warm weather sport it's an outdoor sport and we had every intention of bringing this to market in earlier this spring and that's not the way it, it's gone so far and so we we did have a couple hiccups with the design and development process. We just, we really wanted to nail the product. We didn't want, you know, you you can have all the best marketing in the world, but if the customer gets the product and doesn't have a great experience with it, you're dead in the water. So we we were like, we need to nail the product. And we also don't want to have all these customer service issues. So we've we've really gone above and beyond in, in the engineering side of things. And that just took longer than we anticipated. And so it pushed back our launch. So we're launching in September, which is, you know, fall season, which is not not the prime time to be selling an outdoor game. But that's okay. We look at it as 
you know, we, we, we do feel very strongly that we did what we, what we tried to accomplish, which was nail the product. And now we're in this for the long game and we'll start small. Like Scott said, we've ordered a thousand units and we'll test the market. There's enough warm weather locations that we can be focused on Florida, Arizona, California, et cetera. And uh, so we'll start there and get hopefully some, some momentum going into, into next year. But you know, that's been one, one, one early mistake that we, that we made or one learning. I've got one more. Yeah. I mean, sorry. Um, it's not really a mistake, you know, like, like you say, it's, it's these things just take longer than expected. Right. Right. Um, right. But, but like you said, you know, your plan isn't to go live and, and sell a million dollars worth of, worth of inventory in the first month, right? You've got, you've right. got a thousand units. You're going to test it out, um, get feedback from people and then, you know, iterate or work on the marketing over time and, and properly launch next year. Um, you know, that's a sensible way to do it, right? Yeah. That's another way to say it. We're, um, going, we're going the sensible route. Yeah. For, fortunately, you're in the States. There's enough places that are going to be uh, pretty, pretty warm until like, well, I mean, even kind of Decemberish Florida's all right, isn't it? California. It is. Oh, all the Not, Southern yeah. States stay warm. Yeah. Yeah, the year. Ex- exactly. So, just got to be a bit more targeted with the location of your marketing. You know, if, if you were over here, you'd probably be screwed because I think it was 12 degrees here today, but 12 Celsius. Um, and I thought that I thought it was cold today. I was, I was a little bit shocked <laughs> and it's only what mid, mid September. So yeah, if you were UK, you'd be in, in a little bit of trouble, but yeah. What is it? What's is, is Brighton South? What's like the beach town South? Brighton. Yeah. Brighton's on the Brighton. South coast. Yeah. Even that gets cold, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, on the coast, it's probably it's it's probably worse because they get they get a lot of wind. It gets really gotcha. really windy down there, actually. Yeah, I'll throw in one more that's just been a like we want to sell this on Amazon. I think it's just like a it's it's one of the thing partners you have to have in the direct consumer world. You know, we we would love to just sell it on our own website, but Amazon's an essential player in this space, and um, people are so used to transacting on Amazon that we wanted to have product on there. And my experience, I've had a number of products sell on Amazon and it's never been easy. Um, it is just complex and, and I'd say annoying to get a product on there. We had a kind of strange experience. You know, we're a month away from launch and we thought, oh, we better get a jump on kind of getting the product live and, and listed on Amazon, even though it's not quite ready. And we went and uh, created that account, um, started the product listing, and then all of a sudden got this big error message that said, uh, your account has been disabled. Um, and couldn't figure out quite why. And I was able to dig in and, and uh, basically it's kind of the ultimate error message was that I had two, two a- accounts under the same business address. And Amazon had actually gone so far as to shut down my other business because of that. So I had oh, wow. this up and running business doing a fair amount of volume. That got triggered and shut down as well because Amazon by default, doesn't let you have two businesses running under the same business address. And I get why what they're trying to do is avoid people uh, skirting the system. And you know, when it, when they have a problem to just shut that business down and reopen another business to just kind of basically play whack-a-mole with Amazon. Um, yeah. But we were trying to do it on the up and up. We happen to same have the same business address, but they're very different business business entities. But they shut down down both of our accounts. And there was a moment there, honestly, where we thought we might not get either of them back up. Uh, 
thankfully through a series of kind of lucky events, we were put in touch with someone that works at Amazon. And even he was like, listen, guys, it's not likely that you'll get this back up and active, but if you are to, here's how you have to do it. And it was like going to trial. We like had to prepare this brief. We had to prepare multiple pages of documents and all of these attachments proving um, that we were a separate business entity. And then we sent it all in and he said, you'll send it in and it's still very likely they'll say no. And then we maybe will be able to get a face-to-face with someone. Um, so, Jeez. you know, that was a scary moment for our business. It's an essential part of our business to have an Amazon business. And we were worried that it would shut down not only that business, but my own, my own other business. Um, thankfully, it all worked out, but it was scary. Most most websites, when you do something like that, it just says, sorry, there's already an account associated with this address. And just doesn't let you set up the new one. Yeah, but to, like, to shut down the existing thing as well, yeah, that's, that seems a little bit... A little it's bit harsh, aggressive. a bit extreme. It's aggressive, yeah, yeah. It was aggressive, and so it scared us a bit. It scared me more than Tim. I think Tim was like, uh, "Everything will work out." I was like, "Oh, this might ruin our business." Thankfully, it didn't. Thankfully, we got it up and active. We have a business on Amazon. It's about to go. It's semi live right now. You can find it actually on Amazon in the U.S., um, but it will be kind of a full A plus listing in the next week or so. So we're excited oh, that sweet. we were able to navigate those scary waters. That'd be good. Have you? Well, obviously, you've sold on Amazon before, so you, you kind of confident you know how to set get you know get things going with Amazon. Semi confident. I mean, I I have another business selling on Amazon, but I'd say it's still a world that I don't know well. Um, we've actually hired an agency to help us there. There are certain skill sets that Tim and I both have where we're we're very good, and then there's others. I think one of the things we're both good at is recognizing our shortcomings there. Uh, Neither of us are very good at navigating the world of Amazon and kind of knowing best practices. And so we've hired someone else to help us there. We were small and scrappy about that. We interviewed 10 different companies and chose an economical option that can kind of do a lot of the work and we would be able to do some of the work ourselves. Um, but ultimately, we do have an expert helping us there. Yeah, cool. cool. Yeah, I think um, stuff like that, especially when you're getting started, can be a bit soul destroying <laughs> when you when you yeah suddenly you, you hit a massive blocker like that i mean i so you guys know you must know FanDuel DraftKings, sure over there yeah so i i launched a similar business over here it all made sense to us right big gambling country big fancy football country you know we have um fancy premier league which is massive it's done in offices it's done like everyone does it so we thought we're kind of combining these two aspects, gambling, fantasy football, but also creating a faster fantasy football experience because it's it's daily, it's not season long. Um, then we realized, well, it was gambling because it fits some of the criteria for gambling, which means you have to get a license. Our lawyers initially told us, um, you definitely need this license. We think you might need this license, but we don't know for sure. Um, then with that came, well, because you're a gambling company, bank accounts won't give you a bank account. Uh, sorry, bank, uh, banks won't give you a bank account. So we had to find a private bank, which required a minimum deposit of like 50 grand, which is basically everything for the business. Um, then it was, you know, trying to do advertising and obviously advertising was suddenly restricted because we're gambling. Um, trying to work with affiliates was more expensive because they, they just lumped us in as gambling rather than, you know, as far as they're concerned, it's just gambling. There's no pool betting, which is what we were. 
uh, versus like sportsbook, um, that sort of thing. So, you know, they wanted CPAs of 300 pounds, 200 pounds, 300 pounds per player. Whereas our lifetime value was projected at about 40. Mm. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's, it's all these things that we didn't really look into until we developed the platform. We got our license and, and we're just like, cool. We, we, it was we're almost like we've done the hard bit. Now we just need to sign up for these accounts, you know, and get things going and grow the business. And it just, it just keeps hitting you and you've got to keep just trying to find ways around it. I think you just described entrepreneurship. <laughs> it's <Yeah. laughs> things, things really never go as planned. And I'm, I'm a big believer in trial by, trial by fire, learn by fire. Like just, you can, you can read up as much as you want on the way to do things. But I think until you get your hands dirty and you jump in, that's how you learn and that's how you grow. And that's how you really get businesses off the ground. And so as much as it, I'm sure it was painful for you guys, and I've got plenty of similar experiences I could share that, that sound a lot like yours. I still think that's the way to do it. I think that's, you just got to get going and yeah, things are not going to work out as planned, but you, you, you bob and weave and you figure it out. And that's the life of an entrepreneur. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. If if we had if we'd done that research before and actually uncovered those problems, we might never have gone ahead with the business because yeah, exactly. we might have looked at it and gone, "It's going to be impos- impossible to grow the company because we have no advertising channels, bank accounts an issue, um, taking payments." Right? We had to, we had to go and source some like completely unknown payment uh, payment gateways because the main ones won't touch gambling, all that sort of stuff. That would have suddenly made the whole project seem like an absolute nightmare to deal with and we might not have done it. Whereas ignorance ignorance is bliss. Yeah. Once we built the platform and we had, um, I think we had about a thousand people on the wait list for it. You know, it was kind of, well, let's, let's go ahead, right? Let's get the gambling license done. That was actually relatively easy. And then, uh, yeah, then all, all of that happened. (laughs) And yeah, we just had to push through. We kind of committed at that stage. Yeah, I'd say the people always ask me if I had it to do all over again, would I do it again? Which is kind of the whole last 15 years of starting businesses and some of them working, some of them not. And I mean, my answer is probably knowing what I know now, I wouldn't do it again, but I'm glad I did it because I didn't know what I didn't know. I went in, learned lots of, along the way, um, but no, I wouldn't try and start a brick and mortar retail chain again. I learned a lot along the way, but I wouldn't try and do that again. Um uh, but I'm glad I did it. And I'd say yep. that's the, it's going to be the same thing here. Like we're starting this new business 20 years from now. If someone came to me and said, well, do you want to start paddle smashing? And I'd say probably no, um, but I'm going to be really glad I did it because this yeah. is kind of, as Tim said, this is entrepreneurship. This is the sort of learning, growing trial by fire along the way, and then hopefully creating something great. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. If, if I had the opportunity to go back and start it again, I, I would, but I'd do it differently. I, I, we'd, uh, we talked about this afterwards, actually. Uh, we would go down the freemium app route and we would just make it available worldwide. Um, still use live football data so people are getting that real experience, but cut out the gambling, um, put advertising in there, find a way to put you know um, in-app purchases in and, and run it as a mobile game rather than a, a gambling app. 
Yeah. And you know, what you don't know is what would have happened there. You know, there would have been, there would have been hard parts there too. You just don't know, you know, yeah, exactly. All kinds of shortcomings in premium. One is that you're not making money. It's just, how are you making money? And all of that is, is it's tough. And so, you know, all of these kind of other paths that we could have taken seem more appealing because they weren't the ones we took. Um, but there were likely pitfalls along that path too. I mean, you just don't know. So I think the reality is there are always pitfalls. The ones that I think tend to succeed well in entrepreneurship are the ones that can navigate those, that sort of take those pitfalls as part of the process. Um, I'd say that it's what Tim and I both do well, is we are able to kind of take the blows of everyday entrepreneurship and just keep rolling with it. Um, and just kind of understand it as part of the process. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um Awesome. Uh, just before we finish, uh, is there anyone in the kind of e-com space or marketing space that you would want to sit down for lunch with, like pick their brain or something? So I've I've been recently reading. Uh, there's a, a gentleman by the name of Nick Sharma. Uh, he owns a company called Sharma Brands, as a part as as, a, as well as a couple others, I believe. And he does a he's he's I think an early DTC marketer. And he has a pretty popular newsletter that he puts out once a week. And I've just found it very valuable with the wisdom that he shares. And so that's someone I think that would be kind of cool to sit down with and hear some more stories and hopefully obviously glean more uh, insights and wisdom from him on our on our own path and what we're doing and whatnot. So that, that's a name that comes to mind is, is Nick Sharma. Okay. Yeah, he's actually, um, his name's come up a couple of times. Mm. I need to get him on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've got a little bit of a connection to these, so it's not as if we haven't had a little bit of this, but um, Golf Spikeball and, and Crossnet and some of the other um, successful outdoor active games um, game players, they just have been great pioneers in this space. And I'd say especially Spikeball has a great, been a great pioneer. They sort of forged this new way to sell an outdoor game, um, not wholly reliant on brick and mortar retail. And so to, it would be awesome to be able to kind of have members of that team helping us out and kind of help us avoid some of the pitfalls and to kind of know best, best practices in the space. So that's one that we would love to continue to, to look for and foster those relationships. Cool. Awesome. Uh, and, and finally, any cool tools that you guys use and anything that you've you've kind of found uh, while building puddle smash that you you love using and you'd recommend one that i'll say oh sorry i know i'm not going <laughs> i'm going out of turn but uh oh, I, we are excited about this um app that is a shopify app called snowball and the way snowball works is it's essentially can uh turns your consumers into affiliates immediately upon purchase so if someone transacts on your website, they immediately get served a promo code that they're able to use. Um, and they can give their friends and family a discount on your product and they will get paid money back in return. Um, and for a product like ours that is so highly demonstrable and that really the, the way this thing sells is by having people go out and play it. Well, we're incentivizing people to play the game. Uh, yeah, they take it out to the park, they play it. People will invariably come up and ask them about it. And for them to be able to use their own promo code to tell people, hey, buy it here and you get 20 bucks off, they get 20 bucks back if they sell it. Um, it's what we think will help us to kind of start this snowball effect of, of the game. Yeah, so 
actually that that was something that worked really well for us uh, when I had my my gambling company. We so we allowed people to set up private leagues. So you could create a league just with your friends in it, or you know you could post the code or whatever anywhere. Um, but we also added referrals, right? So you could invite your friends; they would get a bonus for joining. You would get a bonus based on what they spent, and then they would join your private league. And that seemed to work really, really well for us. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, I can add one too. There's uh, right now reviews are huge within early stage brands. Uh, there's just this level of doubt that a new consumer may have when you have a new product. And so it's it's a big deal to get reviews. And so there's a few out there. The one we chose to go with is Okendo. Um, we just, uh, through actually a connection with one of our competitors, uh, CrossNet, uh, as, as Scott mentioned, we've kind of fostered a relationship with uh, the co-founder there. And they've spoken highly of that one that Nick Sharma just I just spoke about. He he mentions them in, in his newsletter. So just getting reviews early on that's been kind of beat into us from the different folks that we've talked to. Of just you really need to establish that social proof early and letting people know you know not from you that this is this is a legit game and get those cons- early consumers sharing the love and uh, telling that to the world. Yeah, cool. Yeah, big fan of Akendo. Uh, I've used them a couple of times with with clients. Yeah, nice. it's a really cool nice. um, app for like the the kind of rich reviews that you can build with them. Mm-hmm. You know, using uh, images, video, uh, like verified profiles, attributes, all that sort of stuff really builds those really good looking, rich reviews that I think when people see them on a website, they go, "Okay, there's there's some cool information there," as opposed mm-hmm. to just you know four star and two sentences. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, It's been really, really interesting hearing about the the journey of the business. Uh, If anyone wanted to reach out and and speak to you guys or find out more, what's the best way of doing that? Yeah, you can just contact us at paddlesmash.com. I mean, both Scott and I are, you know, the ones checking that we're a small team right now. And so, you know, paddlesmash.com and we're at paddlesmash on, on most social channels. And, uh, but that's, that's the best place to, to find us and, and reach out to contact us. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, Will. Appreciate it. Thank you. I really like the concept of selling a smaller target number of, of product first, you know, really testing the market and iterating on the customer feedback before actually going in for that hard launch. As we've just discussed, it's really about testing in the beginning, uh, not just the product, but on the marketing side as well. Different customer segments, different methods of marketing uh, from influencer marketing, UGC, And don't be afraid to hire an expert in an area you're not so confident in. For example, in this case, Amazon marketing. Separately, uh, if you're going down the entrepreneurial route, it's important to know that nothing ever goes as planned. Tim's and Scott's advice is that there's no better way to learn than just getting your hands dirty. Spending a lot of time on research uh, won't necessarily help you when it it comes down to it. Uh, If you'd like to learn more about uh, Tim and Scott, you can find them on LinkedIn or just head over to paddlesmash.com. Any other podcast questions, feedback or guest requests, please send them over to will at customerswhoclick.com or DM me on LinkedIn. Next week, I'll have Ben Negendorf on the show, uh, founder of Dropship Breakthrough, and we'll be discussing, uh, you guessed it, the controversial topic of dropshipping. Uh, but until then, let's keep those customers clicking. Mm-hmm.